The Witch Wave is brought to you by The Conjured Saint. It's a spectacular online resource for handcrafted magical artifacts, including ritual oils, sacred bath and body products, and spiritual cleansers. You'll find these and much, much more on theconjuredsaint.com. Even better, Witch Wave listeners get 20% off by using offer code WITCH, that's W-I-T-C-H, at checkout. So what are you waiting for? Go to theconjuredsaint.com and conjure some new magic into your life today. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to the Witch Wave. I just got back from a trip to Mexico City, which is one of my very favorite places in the world. And I was there this time to see an exhibition of my favorite artist, the surrealist painter and art witch, Remedios Varro. And when I was at the show, looking at her sketches and paintings and books and magical objects, I was overcome, not just by her work and how much she's meant to me, but also because I felt her presence. Now, Remedios passed away in 1963, nearly two decades before I was even born. Nonetheless, there was this moment when I was standing looking at one of her paintings, and I just knew she was there with me. It was an emotional and spiritual experience, to be sure, but it was also a physical one. My body felt her nearby, and I got this. I tend to think of it as a fuzzy sensation, This soft, alive tingling up and down my arms that I get whenever I'm experiencing something uncanny or numinous. In that moment, her painting felt like a bridge, a physical tool or portal that was acting as a connection point between Remedios and me. I said some things to her. I thanked her. And I truly believe that she heard me. Now, that word believe is a tricky one, isn't it? What is belief? Does believing in something make it true? Is magic really real? Are these even the right questions to be asking? I mull things like this over a lot, certainly as someone who thinks and writes and talks about magic for a living but also as someone who identifies as a witch. I believe in magic, and I do so because I know the things I've experienced are mysterious and transformational and, for me, very, very real. But I also know that they are so difficult, if not impossible, to quantify or describe, and certainly to, quote-unquote, prove. And still human beings have attempted to interface with supernatural elements for centuries, using every tool at their disposal, from crystal balls to paintbrushes to tarot cards to cameras. We are crossing over into liminal space and suspending our hypercritical, materially focused sense of disbelief. We take a leap of if not faith, then hope that if we open ourselves up to the unknown and work with the right device at just the right time, we'll get a glimpse of the great mystery and experience something inexplicable, 
yet deeply meaningful. We do this when we wear a lucky charm or hear a snippet of a song come on the radio which feels like a message directly for us. Or when we stand in front of a work of art and commune with its maker. Today's guest on the podcast is Peter Biebergall, a writer and a very good friend of mine who, through his many books and writings, explores ideas about belief and celebrates the many ways that humans have tried to make contact with invisible forces and conjure magic in their lives, whether through music, through ritual, or in his latest book, through technology. In this episode, we have a juicy chat about belief and the otherworldly, and the importance of what Peter calls the occult imagination. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Crystal writes, Hi Pam, big fan of the show. My question is probably a bit strange, but maybe it seems that way to me because I've never heard anyone else talk about this. I have recently picked up my practice and begun to nurture my inner witch, which has long been dormant. Lately, I feel like I'm having one coincidence after another, and they seem to be hinting that I am being called on by a goddess. I feel nuts saying that, but the first inkling happened when I left my therapist's office, having just told him, quote, I feel lost, like the universe needs to scream at me, not hint. I'm not seeing the writing on the wall unless it writes it in black and white, unquote. I had also discussed how I had felt connected to two goddesses from different pantheons, Hecate and the Morrigan. When I got into my car, I did my usual routine to get out of the parking garage. I was listening to the Witch Wave episode with Rachel True, and then I saw it. Parked just before the exit to the garage was a black car with the license plate Hecate. I stopped the car for a moment and stared. I thought long and hard about what it might be, did some research, and it would make sense why she would be reaching out since I feel I am at a crossroad. The most recent is finding a hand-painted mug at a thrift store I've never been inside before, with a Greek-style woman reaching out her hand to hold a star with a waning moon in the background and a greyhound-style dog jumping in the foreground. It was signed by the author on the bottom, Eve's Hands, 1986. I guess my question is whether you've heard of a person being contacted by a goddess or god, how to be sure, and I guess, for what purpose? And what should I do about it? And more importantly, how can I be sure I am not misreading the signs and thinking it's Hecate when it's really Morrigan or Athena, etc.? What does one even do with this information? Thanks for reading this, and any help you recommend is highly appreciated. Keep making your amazing show. Hi, Crystal. I read your beautiful email, and I confess I started laughing. Not at you, of course not, but because to me, when I read this, it is so clear and I have to wonder if in the writing of it or in hearing me read it out loud just now, you see how clear it is too. I know it's hard to have perspective on our own subjective experiences, especially when it comes to magic. But let's have a quick review here. You said out loud to your therapist, the universe needs to scream at me, not hint. I'm not seeing the writing on the wall unless it's in black and white. And then directly after that, you see a black car with a license plate that says Hecate. Um, that sounds like a scream to me. I'm on the lookout for magic all the time, and I've never seen a license plate that says Hecate. What are the odds of that? It's extremely rare and a hell of a synchronicity or clue from spirit. But we're not done, because then you find a mug in a shop with a Greek-looking woman and a waning moon and a greyhound, 
all signifiers of Hecate. So Crystal, this is not a whisper, okay? I think what's happening here is that you just need to listen to yourself and trust these signs. I often say, follow the trail of cosmic breadcrumbs. Well, you've got an entire loaf being handed to you right now. So yes, I'd say it's time for you to start exploring and figuring out what Hecate is trying to teach you or lead you to. Now, what does she want with you? What are you going to learn? I have no idea. But I do know a few ways for you to get started. First of all, read, 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 read. There's a book about Hecate I really love by Sorita de Este and David Rankin. I hope I'm pronouncing both of those names correctly. But anyhow, the book is called Hecate Liminal Rights. It's an informative and inspiring book that explores a lot of her different aspects and stories. And I think it's a really solid place for you to start if that resonates with you. You can also make a little altar to Hecate or add her to your altar if you have one already. And you don't have to buy one of those big figures if you don't have the room or the funds right now. You can simply print out a picture of her or use one of her symbols that represents her. She's associated with keys, for example. So maybe you find a beautiful old skeleton key at a flea market or a vintage shop. Or maybe you just put that mug on the altar. But in any case, it's a way for you to honor her and connect with her. And finally, you can start journaling about her. Keep track of the messages that she sends you and write down thoughts you have about her or poems to honor her or questions that you have for her and just see what comes through. I don't know where any of this is going to lead you, but I assure you it's happening for good reason. Trust this. Happy journeying, Crystal, and tell Hecate I say hey. Now, on to my guest. Peter Biebergall is the author of several books, including Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll, too Much to Dream, A Psychedelic American Boyhood, and his latest book, Strange Frequencies, The Extraordinary Story of the Technological Quest for the Supernatural. He's also written about the occult in music and literature for such places as The New Yorker Online, Slate, The Times Literary Supplement, The Quietus, Boing Boing, and The Believer. Peter studied religion and culture at Harvard Divinity School, and he is also an avid fan and deep thinker about speculative and fringe culture, especially as it overlaps with pop culture in places like comic books and sci-fi films. Peter is one of my very favorite people to talk to about magic and belief. So what you're about to hear is kind of like you eavesdropping on one of our typical conversations. Peter joined me via Skype from his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Peter Biebergall, welcome to the Witch Wave. Hello, Pam. Hi, Peter. It's so nice to get to talk to you, albeit in a much more formal way than you and I usually speak, because in full disclosure, you are one of my very dear friends, but it's great to talk to you on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, I feel like most of our conversations usually end up getting seriously in the weeds about things. So I imagine will be familiar with however this goes. Yes, we are very familiar with nerding out together. And you are an author. You've written several books, all of which touch on topics that I'm fascinated by and that I know listeners to this show will be fascinated by as well. You have a new book out called Strange Frequencies, The Extraordinary Story of the Technological Quest for the Supernatural. And one of my other favorite books of yours is Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. You've written many, many, many other things. But one through line that keeps coming up 
for me, when I'm looking at your work holistically, is this tension between belief and skepticism. And I wondered today, yeah. imagine this changes <laughs> from day to day, but today, if you could give yourself a number between one being the most skeptical and 10 being the most believing without any sense of critical thinking, let's say, where are you falling when it comes to the supernatural, the occult and magic? It reminds me of our sex spectrum scale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is like the Kinsey spectrum of belief. Exactly. So I think that what I need is a broader scale, one that is less vertical and more horizontal insofar as that depending on what we're talking about, that meter is going to change. Mm -hmm. So for example, do I believe that a psychic phenomena is measurable in a way that can produce actual peer-reviewed scientific results, my skepticism is going to be at, at the higher range. So in other words, you don't believe that we can scientifically study occult phenomena? No. So that's where I, my skepticism would peak. Okay. But if we want to talk about whether or not consciousness is something that is not located in the chemistry of the brain, and that allows for certain kinds of possibilities of phenomena that we can experience, I'm going to be pushed way into the belief. So that's interesting because you approach the occult, especially within this newest book about technology and the supernatural, really from the approach of a hacker, a maker. There's a lot in this new book that is not only about the ways in which technology has historically been interfacing with the occult or the supernatural, but also to me, this book is a story about the ways in which humankind has been building new systems to try to do things like contact the dead or animate inanimate objects. And so do you think it's fair to say that you're as interested in people and people's search for mystery, whether or not the mystery is actually true or false? And maybe take it a step further to say people's expression of that mystery. So for example, the artful representation of those experiences I find to be the most authentic ways of interacting with them. And so this is something that you and I have talked about a lot, but it gets to where once we start to try to literalize these things that we try to argue is measurable is where I lose my interest but where we are trying to use the experience to create some kind of universal language or symbolic experience for somebody else, then now I've crossed over to something that I not only embrace, but have actually felt connected to in those spiritual ways as well. So let me give you an example. I've been having an argument with somebody on Facebook. Sorry. I say, yeah, <laughs> because I was talking about my frustration with right wing conspiracy theories that say, for example, Mexican Islamists, you know, <laughs> are trying to cross the border to interact with the Illuminati. So I say that's frustrating to me. And then a friend of mine on Facebook says, well, I know that you're sympathetic to other kinds of belief, and I don't understand why you make a distinction between this kind of belief and the belief in the Virgin Mary and the belief in a divinatory experience by a shaman. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between a crackpot conspiracy theory and right. essentially religious belief or mystical belief? 
And I said, well, first of all, right wing conspiracy theories have never produced any art, music or literature that has been of any value to Western civilization. (laughs) So we can start there. Okay. But then they went on and said, no, it's still all the same. It's still about this irrational thing that has only gone to undermine human development in its rational attempts to create a civilized world. And I said, look, if you don't know the difference between the belief that there were satanic molesters in the basement of a pizza shop and John Coltrane's Love Supreme, then we're not even using the same language to talk about these things. Right. Because one is a literal belief and one is a mythopoetic artistic expression of a mystical experience. That's right. There's a universality and an authenticity to that, that even if I don't believe Coltrane's whatever he believes in the same way, that I can share in that experience with him. And even in some ways, maybe have a kind of osmosis effect of that experience. Let's give an example from Strange Frequencies. Shannon Taggart, the photographer who some of your listeners probably know. Yep, we had her on an episode last season. We love Shannon Taggart. So she in some ways was kind of like the muse of the book because what she is trying to do and what she has said, she's not using her camera to try to clarify belief to take pictures of mediums, which the resulting photograph may reveal some kind of strange phenomena at play. And we should back up, Peter, and say, for those who don't remember, Shannon is a spirit photographer. She goes to places like Lilydale and meets with mediums and people who are allegedly contacting the dead. And she takes pictures of these people while they're having these experiences. And her pictures really leave a question as to, is she capturing images of actual spirits with her camera? Or is she just allowing for natural glitch and scientific aberrations to be stand-ins for a spiritual experience? Because in her photographs, there's lots of blur and lots of double exposure and lots of ghostly images. That's right. And so she would say, or at least when I was interviewing her for the book, that she wasn't trying to clarify which one of those things is true. She's not trying to say, oh, look, in the history of spirit photography, here's what they did, and this is why we know it's not true. Nor is she trying to say, see, here's a photograph of a spirit. What she's trying to do is to reveal this relationship, one between technology, which is the camera, the belief, say, of the medium, perception, and the imagination that is the mediating thing that happens between those two. And so I can look at one of Shannon's photographs, and I don't need to believe that spirits exist after we die, nor do I have to be looking at her photograph in the hopes that I'm going to be able to debunk the history of spirit photography, but rather her photographs allow for this moment of enchantment. And it's this ambiguous liminal place that I think that art makes possible in a way that a kind of literalizing of that experience would, for me, push that to the skeptic scale. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It reminds me of the, I believe he was a psychologist and a philosopher, William James, who I think you quote in the book too, and he, he wrote this famous book called The Varieties of Religious Experience right. in 1902. And he basically talks about how these mystical or religious experiences exist across cultures, even if they look different. Uh, And some of the markers, one is ineffability. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that you can have this experience that is mystical and transcendent, but kind of impossible to put into words and to literalize to your point. And I think another feature is that it's what he calls noetic. In other words, that it teaches you something. There's some 
knowledge that comes through. And so, Peter, if I'm following your own thought process here, you're saying that those experiences can be true. And I know that word true is very mushy. Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, but that they are impossible to actually quantify. Why do they need to be quantified? I mean, I think that's what I want to keep pushing back on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is the need to quantify it is irrelevant to the experience and to the generative processes that are a result, which often are in the form of art and literature and epic poetry. And so the atheist that says, how could you believe that Moses parted the Red Sea is just as guilty of that as the fundamentalist believer who says Moses parted the Red Sea? Why are either of them reading it as something that's quantifiable? Because to you, it's just a story. It's just a metaphor. It didn't actually happen or or it doesn't matter to you whether or not it happened. Yes. And I would only push back on on that word just because I don't think it's just. I think it is the stories that are threaded through our DNA and to try to pretend that somehow we could have be without them would be to lose, first of all, a whole essential part of our imagination and our consciousness, but also reduce civilization to something that is almost without any form of art. So some might argue, Peter, that technology is in the realm of science and not art. And I could see an argument that, oh, it's a combination of both. But I could see someone saying technology is all about measuring and fixing an immaterial or invisible force into a machine, let's Mm -hmm. say, or some kind of device. So your book, your newest book, you touch on everything from golems and robots or, or automata. You touch on photography. You touch on stage magic. You touch on EVP, which remind me that stands for electronic voice phenomena. Right. Which is the idea that you might be able to hear ghosts or spirits through kind of glitching radio frequencies or sounds. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Yep. And so so you're going through all of these different um, technological devices and approaches in your book and trying to figure out whether or not there's any magic in them, perhaps, or at least ask the questions, why do people keep trying to use technology (laughs) to fix or to be conduits for these spiritual experiences? And to me, that feels... I don't know if I want to say like the opposite of your book, Season of the Witch, How the Occult Save Rock and Roll, which was all about music and music as this conduit for the mystical experience. So I am wondering, like, how did you go in your own writing from the space of art and music to this new interest or fascination with technology and science? What got you from music to you know, robotics and cameras. (laughs) Sure. I think that there's a continuum, though, that I at least am able to trace for myself. So there's two. The first is that we're talking about this thing that I like to call the occult or the spiritual imagination. And I want to make sure that when I'm, I'm talking about imagination that I don't know if you saw the Guardian article by Philip Pullman on the Ashmolean Museum magic exhibit. Yes, and I wish I could go. It's this exhibit called Spellbound. Yes, and you know he's, for all intent and purposes, an anti-clerical, borderline atheist fiction writer of magic, right? Yeah, that came through in his his Dark Materials trilogy really, really powerfully. Right. But he says, we have to be clear about what our imagination is. What it isn't is just a fanciful way of telling a story that isn't true. He says, imagination can give us an empathetic understanding of the world of magic. Empathetic is such a powerful and important word 
because empathy isn't just about saying, oh, isn't that nice that somebody believes that? Isn't that quaint, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Empathy is really about being able to share a kind of state of consciousness with the person. It's when somebody falls and you feel their embarrassment. It's because you are inhabiting this shared moment of whatever is happening to that person in a soulful way. So when I talk about imagination, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the things we make up that are funny, right? Mm -hmm. I'm talking about this essential part of our consciousness, of our being that has allowed for everything from the microphone that I'm talking to you on to the painting that's hanging above my desk. That These are all part of this generative process where we are making new things appear in the world. And this is sort of Alan Moore's, the comic book writer, novelist, magician, his definition of why he combines art and magic as sort of this same process, right? They're, they're happening along the same imaginary continuum where we are making something happen in the world according to will. Something new has emerged. It's magic. So that's the place in which I see that the use of technology and the ways in which people have thought of music as allowing for this bringing something that was hitherto unseen or unheard into the world. The other thing I think that they share is that they both often require a performative quality, a performative interaction and a ritualized interaction. You mean some kind of like theatricality? Theatricality, ritual. And again, the performance is the moment where the gods enter the world, right? And this can be a performance with no audience, but oneself and the spirits, correct? You don't necessarily. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's right. We can first define technology as any manipulation of the material world to create a new or different outcome. And so if we really want to extend that to even mean something like John Dee's scene stones and speculum, right? John Dee, can you remind the listeners who that is? Sure. John Dee, the magician, astrologer, he was part of Elizabeth I's court. He was her court astrologer. And he's also known in occult circles as being the person who first, I guess you could say, channeled or was taught by the angelic spheres, the Enochian language, right, right. which has become kind of a standard part of the magician's tool book in Western esoteric circles, right? When you're talking about someone like John Dee and you're talking about his I believe he called it a show stone. Yes, a shoe stone. I love that word so much. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> That's S-H-E-W stone. Yes. Is that right? And this was a scrying, was it obsidian or jet? I'm trying to remember a black polished. Yeah, it was obsidian. Yes, flat polished stone. Yeah, and this is a stone that you can actually see in the British Museum right now. And this is, mm -hmm. you know, something related to you know, gazing into a crystal ball or any other kind of scrying. And and I love the way in which you're connecting that as a technological device. Yes. And so we could maybe say it, and I know there'll be people who disagree with me, but John D hacked a piece of stone <laughs> and he hacked it whereby he took something and used it in a way that it wasn't intended to be used or that people thought it could be used. So you're kind of breaking it, right? You're changing its properties in a way. And so once you've done that, you are now the hacker. You're entered into that state of consciousness whereby you can take something that normally had one purpose or one sense of what it was or was capable of, and you've taken the screws off, you've voided the warranty, as it were, you've broken it in some way, and you're saying, now I'm going to use it to do something new. And in fact, it's often something that would be considered heterodox, something that hierarchy or the 
the conventional wisdom says you're not allowed to do that. You're not supposed to take the battery out of your iPhone. You're supposed to bring it to the shop. But the hacker says, no, F that. I'm going to break this thing and figure out how it works and try to do something new with it. And so the magician like D is doing the same thing, I think, with something like a stone. We can see this all throughout the history of magic. We even see this, I think, most wonderfully in the history of Mormonism. And so we know that Mormons were fantastic magicians. The story is essentially Joseph Smith was also using shoe stones to create a kind of new pair of glasses so that he could read the golden tablets that were given to him by the angel. On that note, Peter, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to definitely continue this when we get back. I've been an enormous fan of blood milk jewels for years. That's because their jewelry incorporates elements of so many fascinating and beautiful inspirations like Victoriana, Jungian alchemy, surrealism, and melancholia. Each piece has a story that adds to the aesthetic and talismanic qualities, and they're meant to be worn as psychic armor. These jewels are made from sterling silver and are encrusted in natural gemstones, including moonstone, labradorite, and onyx. Blood milk jewels are stunning and powerful, and my favorite part of all is that they've been female-owned and operated in Philadelphia since 2008. If you're local, be sure to check out their showroom and event space opening in the spring of 2019. But of course, anyone, anywhere can order Blood Milk Jewels by going to bloodmilkjewels.com. That's bloodmilkjewels.com or at bloodmilk on Instagram. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Peter Biebergal. So Peter, we were going off on this really incredible line of thinking connecting magicians like John Dee or the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, to both magicians and hackers. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about how the people in your book that you met and worked with and interviewed might fall into that paradigm as well. Mm -hmm. So I think Shannon, who we've talked about, is somebody who's kind of misusing her camera, right? She's breaking it. She's breaking the rules, as it were. When she photographs a medium, she lets the shutter stay open for sometimes a minute long, which you're not supposed to do when you're taking a portrait because too much light comes in. So by doing that, though, she allows for the photograph to take on a new reality and what's fascinating about Shannon's photographs is the resulting photograph often corresponds to what the medium might have said is actually happening. So the medium might say, I'm going to do ectoplasmic masks. I will sit here and you will see my face change as the spirit speaks through me. And maybe when you're actually watching the medium, you don't see those ectoplasmic masks. But when you see Shannon's photograph, of the same medium, you will see this masking effect on their face. What's fascinating about that is the history of technology and particularly spiritualism is also the spirit is also the hacker. So in the history of spirit photography, particularly in the in the late 1800s, it's not that the spirits are always around and the person with the camera just happens to capture them in the right moment at the right time. It's that the spirit needs the camera to make themselves known. And so the spirit is on the other side, as it were, also manipulating and repurposing the camera so that they can then appear on film. And that's what I was going to say that, you know, some people could look at Shannon's photograph and say, oh, this is obviously some kind of manipulation or at least allowing for more glitch to come through. But the true diehard believer could say, 
no, you know, she is essentially just using a better kind of bait and fish hook, right? <laughs> exactly. To catch the spirits. Metaphor. Exactly. The same thing goes with electronic voice phenomena, for example. So I interviewed a, a woman named Donna Hogan who lives in England, and she is one of the foremost EVP researchers right now. She had an experience some years ago where her brother-in-law that she was very close to died. And many days after the death, she had a voicemail message with his voice. It was the kind that we use now where you're calling your service provider. And she called them and she said, look, there's something wrong with my voicemail because there's a message from somebody and it's dated. The date doesn't work because the person isn't alive. So something must be wrong. And the technician said, well, you can't be wrong. This is all digital. So if it says that that's when the call came in, that's when the call came in. Something else must be going on. You know? Wow. That reminds me. My dad tells a story that when his dad, my grandpa Charlie, passed away, every morning for months, the phone would suddenly start to ring. And it, this would happen at like five in the morning. And my dad would pick up the phone and there'd be no answer, but it would happen every single morning. And mm. he just had this feeling. And my dad's not a particularly supernaturally oriented person. He's not a total skeptic either, but he just kind of had this weird knowing that it was his father just checking in on him to tell him he was okay. And he actually found it really comforting. And, you know, I think it was part of his grieving process and coming to peace mm -hmm. with this idea that his dad was still there on the other side reaching out. And I think a lot of folks have had this experience of synchronicities and strange coincidences and strange messages coming through via technology. That's right. And and going back to the point, what Donna said would say is that, look, if you're getting a voice on your radio of somebody who has died, it's not that they have a microphone and they're speaking because if they're a disembodied consciousness, they don't have a vocal cords. She would say that what they're doing is also the spirit is having to manipulate the frequencies to make it appear as if there are words, right? So it's like the camera also. It's the bait, you have to give them the means through which they can manipulate some part of the technology to then be heard. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, Ouija boards, right? It's like right. you have this system. I would call that a piece of technology. Absolutely. And so it's like you set up the tools and the parameters and the, the spirits do the best they can with those tools. And what I find interesting about all of this is you open the book by talking about casting some I Ching readings for yourself. And, mm -hmm. and rather than using the actual coins, you do it through some website. I can't remember which one. But it got me thinking about divination as a system of technology, like tarot cards as technology, coins, stones, bones. Could yes, we... there's some medium, right? There's something that allows us to have that interaction. That's the tech. Right. And on the same token, then, could art not be tech, like paint and words? I mean, we right. really could just like, and I don't know that in every case this would work, but it, it makes my mind kind of real, like all the different things that we can use for divination, for contacting the spirit world, for pulling messages through into the material realm. Right. And the better metaphor then, and then tech, I think, goes back to this idea of the hack. So, I mean, think about what we call the visionary, the outsider artist, right? They're the ones that are, we're told, aren't doing it right. They weren't schooled in certain ways that their use of color and form is not according to some tradition or some school. And that's what the hacker is doing. Even in that case, the visionary or the outsider artist is breaking the convention of the medium to allow for the spirit to reveal itself or for the vision to take on this physical 
ideation. Right. But what about inventors? Like, I don't know if this is apocryphal or if you came across this, but I heard that, you know, the inventor of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, am I remembering that right? That he was trying to actually contact the spirits of the dead. And I don't know, would you consider him a hacker? And was that story even true? Yes. So I've heard it also with Edison, who tried to create like a a spirit TV type thing. And you have to understand that we also are thinking about a time when the invisible world had not yet been completely seen. And so the idea of these kinds of possibilities was much more acceptable to folks. Even the person who originally was part of the engineering of the telegraph was somebody who thought, gosh, if we can speak to each other across continents, why can't we speak to each other across worlds? So the leap from one idea to the other, people didn't feel like they were going so far out of the realm of thinking. In some ways, I think what I would like to see or what I was hoping comes through a little bit in in the book and maybe even in Season of the Witch also is that we shouldn't be afraid of spiritual and occult metaphors. We've gotten to a point where science is so bothered by these things that we've lost a little bit of the poetry of the way that we used to talk about nature. And yet at the same time, you can watch cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he'll use words like creation to talk about the universe, right? So there's still a part of that that's still embedded in the way in which we think about nature and think about our relationship to the world. Mm. And so I think that Mm. for somebody like Bell, somebody like Edison, though, we didn't have to be so separate in our realms of imagining. Yeah, that's, that's really, really interesting. Now, I know, Peter, that your father passed away. And I'm trying to remember, were you already working on this book when that happened? Or did that inform the writing of this book? It informed the writing in a couple of ways. One was my father was incredibly stoic, rational fellow. And my mother was the one who was deeply superstitious and more of emotion. And in some ways, I feel like I'm like the perfect, <laughs> you know, hybrid. hybrid of them. And this tension always of, to use the language you're using before, but the believing skeptic, right? Or mm-hmm. the the mystical rationalist, the rationalist who seeks the mystical, right? Who values the irrational. But my dad, after my mother died, they had been married for 42 years. It was a, a super love affair. And when she died, he became much more emotive, much more open about how he was feeling, much more exposed, and started to adopt a few of these kind of superstitious, let's call them spiritual openness to things. And there was a day when he had a bird feeder outside and there was a bird that he had never seen before came to the feeder. And he called me and slowly he started to explain that he felt that that bird was somehow a message from my mother to him. Yep. He allowed himself to enter into that way of thinking. It didn't mean that he became a full on believer and was going to join the spiritualist church or anything, but he allowed for that moment and it was a real moment. And I think that we can have those moments where we can allow ourselves to be enchanted. And technology can do that strangely. Technology, the thing that is supposedly built on the precepts of a science that tells you these things are not real because we are reimagining them and using them in ways that they're not intended to, we can enter into those moments of being enchanted. And so with my dad, one of my most valued objects is something that he owned, which is an old reel-to-reel tape recorder. And when I was working on the chapter on electronic voice phenomena, I had the idea, and Donna, who I was just mentioning, had the idea that I should use this device. And then you and I, Pam, started 
talking about what would that mean to use my dad's tape recorder to do EVP experiments. And Peter, let's not tell folks what the results are, because I know that's a big part of the end of the book. And I want everyone very much to read this brilliant book. But I will ask, did you start it for the direct purpose of contacting your dad specifically? Or was it just broadly to see what other spirits might have come through? I was scared of the idea that I would hear my dad's voice on this tape recorder. Yeah. But I was, and really following your advice at the time, going to allow myself to be open to that, that I couldn't be shut off to the idea. If I was going to use the radio with a tape recorder in that way, I may as well just go all in in terms of what I was going to be open to. And I realized that a part of all of this technology, using technology, trying to record EVPs, taking photographs of mediums in that way, and then some of the other things that I explored, like, quote, trying to build a golem, had to do with entering a particular state of consciousness where these things are possible. And to be in that place is itself an incredibly enchanted place to be because it doesn't matter the outcome. You're not trying to prove anything, but I'm also not trying to debunk anything. I was just being in that state. And it really is an altered form of consciousness. And I think that that is an amazing thing which gets to the heart of the definition of magic and in some ways the hack of that definition, if I can keep using that word. So Crowley, Alistair Crowley, who I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of, came up with the definition of magic as magic is the art and science of causing change to occur in the world according to will. And then Dion Fortune, woman magician, a little bit later. Yep, this is in like the late 19th century, early yes. 20th century, if I'm remembering. That's right. And she went on to start another society. In any event, she altered his definition a little bit in a way that I just find so enlivening. She says, magic is the art and science of causing change to occur in consciousness, according to will. And again, when we're talking about consciousness in this way, we're not just talking about changing your mind, right? We're talking about if you believe that consciousness isn't just a chemical reaction in the brain, then you're talking about something that is the very way in which we interact, you could argue, with the divine, with the larger notion of reality. Yeah, and it's so much about perception and and one's own body and mind as a piece right. of technology, if you will. That's right. Peter, that's great. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Longtime listeners to the podcast know that I am obsessed with Mithras Candles. They are the most beautiful beeswax candles I have ever seen, and they're handcrafted in Philadelphia. Mithras candles smell intoxicating, and they look even better with their wizardly dripped pillars. They also come in a variety of other shapes, from pyramids to tapers to tea lights, and they give off a warm and gentle glow. I have tons of Mithras candles, and I can't get enough. And now you can get some too by going to MithrasCandle.com and using offer code WITCH for 10% off your first order of 2019. So go to Mithras Candle, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and use code WITCH for 10% off your first order of the year. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. I'm speaking with Peter Biebergall. So Peter, you and I share a really similar stance when it comes to pop culture as a great conduit or great intro into magic. And Mm -hmm. I wondered if you could catch folks up in terms of how you first started getting interested in the occult yourself through pop culture. Sure. I mean, it really is my entire life. And I had parents who were, as soon as I showed the slightest glimmer of an interest in something, they would get me whatever I needed to explore it. 
Oh, they sound great. Yeah, they're great. But that meant when I was five or six years old, my dad was buying me creepy and eerie magazine, Warren horror magazines. They were letting me watch monster movies really young. My very earliest imagination was sort of built on these monster movies, horror comic books, all the monster models that were popular in the 1970s. And you have to understand, too, the 1970s was even weirder than the 1960s when it came to a culture, I think. And what do you mean by that? So you have the psychedelic underground culture. And in many ways, the mainstream glommed onto it, but they did it in a little bit more commercial way. Pepsi, for example, had a super psychedelic animated ad that looked like something from Yellow Submarine. Sure. The Archies had their little moment where I think Sabrina actually doses the adults with some kind of magical elixir, which makes them all trip. You know, it's amazing. Amazing. And even Sabrina being a character at all, some could argue, was part of all that. But it wasn't really until the late 60s, early 70s that you start to see people really doing narratives around the occult and the supernatural. So that's when you start to see things like the Wicker Man film. And I love that movie so much. The Wicker Man. I tell you, I think that the in all of horror cinema, the moment when he sees the wicker man for the first time in the climax of the film and he starts screaming and praying is one of the most brilliant moments of a character witnessing the kind of cosmic horror the gods made real and that he's going to be the sacrifice i don't think any film has ever captured that moment of horror that he exhibits in that moment. I think it's divine terror, but I think it's also the terror of human literalism. Like it's also, oh my God, these people I'm surrounded by really believe in this shit and they're really (laughs) going to freaking burn me. Exactly. And the masks, it's genius. Mm -hmm. So that movie had a big impact. You start to see all the Dennis Wheatley, the writer, his sort of satanic cult folk horror of England with films like The Devil Rides Out. Uh, another favorite. So good. Blood on Satan's Claw. Can we also just give Christopher Lee a shout uh, out who was in so many of these films? Exactly. And he actually said the Devil's Ride Out character was his favorite that he did because he finally got to be the good magician, you know? Yeah. Using magic against the sort of devil's. But then we even start to see these crazy made-for-TV movies like the one about the kids whose pet German Shepherd is actually a vessel for Satan and has the kids in the attic doing uh, satanic rituals. I do not know about (laughs) this. It seemed like every episode of television had some satanic plot. And you liked these or were you scared of them? Oh, my God. I love them. And I had monster horror books. I'll tell you a very funny story. I had a book about fantastic and horror films and my parents were, I was showing them the book and my mother flipped to the very back and I forgot that in this book were something from an old Jack Palance vampire movie that had this naked woman and some bats, you know, that was like my secret page, you know, (laughs) and my mother saw it. And she said, oh, my God, I can't we can't let him keep this. And I said, but mom, it's a book about monster movies. (laughs) And she said, all right. You know, like because it was about monsters, it could be as explicit and gory and sexy as it needed to be. Yeah. Which a lot of them were then. But then I also started to become interested. How could you not in magic? And I remember going to Salem on the bus by myself for the first time. Because you grew up, did you grow up in Cambridge? I grew up on the North Shore in Swampscott, Massachusetts. Okay. So Salem was just a bus ride away, Mm -hmm. 10 minutes. And I think, I don't know if it was Laurie Cabot's store, but there was a bookstore there. And I found a copy of The Key of Solomon the King. Wow. And, you know, I was... 13, 14 years old, this completely blew my mind. And partly is because it looked so much like the magic of Dungeons and Dragons that I had been playing. 
but it also was filled with Hebrew and Jewish references. And so growing up as a Jewish kid, it pushed those buttons. And it was about conjuring demons and binding demons and calling upon the angelic names and seals. I mean, it was just like the most profound role-playing magical thing I could ever have found. I never attempted anything in that book. And it really just went to the formation of my imagination and the things that I fell in love with. Around that same time, though, I watched The Exorcist by myself. It was on TV. Mm -hmm. And that ruined me for many years. (laughs) (laughs) Totally, totally. So when did comic books and rock and roll get added to the mix? Was that all around the same time period? Yeah, it was all around the same time. And luckily, I had an older brother who was into Alice Cooper and Led Zeppelin and David Bowie. And he would play Revolution 9 by the Beatles for me just to scare me. You yeah. Know? Yeah. But when he wasn't home, I would go and I would play it. And then I would open up the gatefold cover of David Bowie's Diamond Dogs. And there's Bowie is like this half androgynous, Lincolnthropic creature. And I knew it also had something to do with sex, but I wasn't really quite sure how. Mm -hmm. But that was also part of like the kind of forbidden attraction of all of this. There was also the drug element in there that made it illicit and also really exciting. It's all of a piece. You feed all of this into a kid's head that's already the foundation is Boris Karloff as Frankenstein. Yeah. Like the David Bowie album cover didn't look that much different to me. It was all something that I understood as otherworldly, intruding in on our reality. And that people were doing amazing things with these ideas. It wasn't just looking at the picture of David Bowie as this creature. It was then listening to this album and it being completely blown away by the music. Yeah. And so, Peter, you grow up, you study religion and culture at Harvard Divinity School. And then from there, you're now writing all of these books about belief and about the occult and about the interface between the man-made and the spiritual world. And so just to wrap things up, where do you stand on all of this? Like after studying this and loving this material and writing about it for so long, what do you think about magic? Do you believe it's real or is that not even the right question to ask? I I guess it's not the right question to ask insofar as if you ask me is – magic real, I would say it's as real as a Leonore Carrington painting, right? It can't be any more real than that. Who needs it more real than that? Are you trying to levitate your couch or conjure a demon to do your laundry? Maybe I'm just not interested in that approach to what magic may or may not be. What I am interested in is Alan Moore's Prometheus. Prometheus, Prometheus, sorry, where there's an entire one issue dedicated to the tarot and the representations of that as it plays out in the mythology of this character that he created. But that's not just to say it's just fiction and it's fun. It's to say that there really is a way in which our consciousness gets shaped by the experiences of being inside of these of these worlds. But at the same time, when I'm done talking to you later today, I'm probably going to roll the I Ching. And I'm going to have a connection to a spiritual reality that's my own because it's also a connection to a spiritual reality where a Leonora Carrington painting functions as a particular kind of metaphor for me to activate that part of my soul that can connect with that reality. Mm. There was a book, I wish I could remember the name of the author, but there was a theology text in which... It might even have been actually Rudolf Otto's The Idea of the Holy, where he basically is going to do an anthropological theological study of the Mysterium Tremendum and the primal encounter with the divine. Okay, that's what the book's going to be. And he's going to talk about history and he's going to talk about the development of ethics and theology. But there's a part of the book where he says, But if you can't even enter into a space where these things are possible, then don't bother to read this book. 
that there is no difference between Coltrane's Love Supreme and the belief in satanic cults in the basement of a pizza joint, then this isn't the book for you. My books aren't for you, right? So who are your books for, Peter? This is the final question. (laughs) I think they're for people who are able to enter into a state of mind where the play of these ideas is both an essential part of what it means to be human. It's an essential part of the development of our culture. And if you can allow yourself to sit inside ambiguity, then you can experience uh, states of enchantment. That's gorgeous. We're going to end there, Peter. Before we go, where can people find you and where can they find your incredible books? So books can be bought or ordered from local bookstores. Always a nice place to start, but certainly any of the online places where people tend to buy things will have them. Yep. And my full name without any spaces. I'm on Twitter. In my Twitter profile is my email address. If people want to email me, I'd always love to correspond with folks. Perfect. And I can attest to the fact that you are a wonderful correspondent and a very, very dear friend. I'm so happy that you were here, Peter. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. I'm so glad to be on this incredible show that has been so wonderful to watch its success in such a short period of time. It's been remarkable. Aw, thanks, friend. All right, we'll talk soon. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Peter Biebergall for joining me and for being such a mensch. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop me an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, and you might make it on The Witch Wire. The Witch Wave is produced and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs. Thank you, Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman and Chiquita Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots and lots of twinkly, glittery stars. It makes a big difference and it really does help other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. And please consider pre-ordering my book, Waking the Witch, which is out on June 4th of this year. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.